This is Beyond Busy, the show where we talk productivity, work-life balance, defining happiness and success, all the big questions for work and life. My name is Graham Alcott. I'm your host for the show. And on this episode, it's two for the price of one because I've got Jennifer Aker and Naomi Bagdonis. They are the authors of a book called Humour Seriously, more of which in a moment. Um, so before that, just a quick reminder that the tickets for my six weeks to Ninja uh, evening programme have just gone on sale. Um, so if you go to Eventbrite, you can just type in six weeks to Ninja or go to the graymalcott.com website and you can see it on there. Um, basically, it's six weeks, evening course, UK time, Thursday evenings, and I'm going to be kicking your productivity into shape, basically. Deliberately small group, if you're interested in that, uh, check it out. Eventbrite or graymalcott.com. We'd love to have you there. I think there's a couple of the early bird tickets are still um, available and there's a few of the full price tickets left. So uh, go and check that out. So let's get into this episode. This was a lot of fun to do. I think you're going to really enjoy this one. Um, So the book is called Humour Seriously, Why Humour is a Superpower at Work and in Life. And um, yeah, just such an underrated um, trait to really help you build relationships, build trust. And of course, you know, when you have relationships and trust, a lot of productivity comes from that. So I think it's a really important skill for an, anyone in business. Um, so just a quick note about our guest. So Jennifer is a behavioral psychologist. She's an author and she is the general Atlantic professor at Stanford Graduate School of Business. And Naomi is also a Stanford lecturer, but is also a professionally trained comedian. She does improv and stand up and um, as well as work as a strategy media consultant as well. So um, these are two uh, very funny women. We had a really uh, just a really fun hour on Zoom uh, just chatting about this book and talking about uh, some of the real benefits to humor and, you know, levity in the way that we speak and the way that we act and the way that we build relationships. So there's just loads to take away from this, some really interesting little tips and tricks. So let's get straight into the episode. Here is my conversation with Jennifer and Naomi. So I've done a bit of training in um, improv comedy before. Very nice. Um, what, um, yeah. Long form or short form? Uh, both, but... I did long form musical as well. Um, oh, love which that. is great fun. I yeah, love long form musical. With one right? of the, so I have a friend who is in a thing in the UK called Showstoppers. Do you know Showstoppers? I've heard yes. of it. Yeah. yeah. So it's in the West End here and I think it may have been over to Broadway. Um, but yeah, they just, they do improvised entire musicals from scratch with very high production values as well. Um, that's the impressive thing about it, like huge sets and, bring out bring out props and stuff and it's all just from scratch and it's like do you want what musical do you want this song in the style of and it'll be like i want it to be a bit like hamilton and they literally know like every wow. single musical that's in the west end and like what wow. the styles are it's incredible yeah so anyway one, one of my friends is in that and she's also in a thing called the maydays which is a brighton and london based thing i've done loads of their courses mm-hmm. and they're Amazing. all kind of people that train with them um, they go over to like Second City and IO and get loads of expert tuition and then bring it back to the UK. That's kind of like yeah. that. So yeah, so we might talk a bit, are bit you about musical? that. Are you personally pretty musical if you did musical improv? 
I uh, so I used to sing in bands and um, was a singer songwriter for a few years. So I can I can sing and I, like I've got good pitch and things like that. But mm-hmm. like it was still terrifying for me. It's still kind of so out of my comfort zone. You know, and I've yeah. written songs and stuff before, but like writing them on the fly. So yeah, yeah, it's oh. a whole other thing. Yeah, there's something so I find long form improv to be sort of borderline meditative where you have yeah. to get a state of flow. Nothing can exist outside of mm. this 10 by 10 foot stage. And, you know, you ha- you really have to be present in a way that few other things require. Yeah. And I find that really tough because uh, I, I can get in the zone, you know, in that sort of Zen attention thing. But like I have such a bad memory. That picking yeah. up on it, and the thing with the long form is that it's like all those tiny little details and offers and whatever that have gone on. Yeah, you have to just have them all and totally. not, not forget all the names and all that. It's just that's the thing that really I'd love to be able to do it with a pen and paper. But yeah, so I think we'll just jump in. I think were you going to say something there, Jennifer? Before we, yeah, I was going to ask you. Um, I think this is an appropriate time to ask you to sing. Um, you know, yeah. anything, Graham. You know, just brush that talent off, and 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 also just. <laughs> I think it's it will probably start this podcast off much, you know, in a strong way. So, wanted to invite you to sing. So, welcome to the Beyond Busy Podcast with Naomi and Jennifer. Should we start there? Whoa! Is that <laughs> a pitch or what? That was just. <laughs> I don't know what the tune was of that, but I just kind of made it up. Um, so, <laughs> so let's jump in, shall we? Um, I, I mean, I'm having fun already, so this is uh, this is probably a good um, endorsement for your book. So this is going to be an hour where I'm just constantly surprised and kept on my toes. That's that's I think what we've established so far. Um, and so you guys are the co-authors of this book, Humor Seriously, um, which I've been really enjoying. And we're going to talk about humor and levity and how these things are underrated and very powerful tools in business, right? Right. Let's do it. Um, The first thing I wanted to talk to you about was your little story of how you guys met. So um, Jennifer, you asked Naomi to be a guest lecturer. That's right. For a course that you were running at Stanford and the students were laughing hysterically while learning about neurochemical brain systems and factor analysis. Yeah, it was stunning. I got to tell you, like, imagine yourself at a Stanford business school classroom, 50 people in the room. Um, it, the, the session is supposed to be on how do you leverage story and data together to build empathy in teams, to drive growth for companies. She goes into the deep empirical basis of understanding analytics as well as narrative. And people are on the floor laughing. (laughs) It it made no sense. So I have to ask Naomi then, so how, how deliberate is that? How long does that take to to create that effect. It just seems like such a, such a mad scene. Yeah. Once you get really good at interpretive dance, it comes pretty. (laughs) Um, (laughs) So I, 
you know, Jennifer's background, she's a behavioral scientist who's been teaching at Stanford for many years um, and studies how meaning and purpose shape the choices we make and human well-being. And I am, you know, come from the corporate strategy world. So corporate strategist, but I've always had a personal passion for, for comedy. And so in addition to the, the sort of corporate work that I do, I've been doing, as you have, um, improv comedy and some stand-up comedy on the side. And um, to your question about how long does it take, you know, it is our belief that it's a lot easier and more accessible than people think to tap into their sense of humor. Nice, which we're going to talk a lot more about. That was a lovely segue. Love that. <laughs> um, so, so you just give me a little bit of your background there. So you're both at Stanford. Um, Jennifer, you, you know, you're also working as a psychologist and then Naomi doing a lot of work with strategy and media. Um, and so you've come together for this book. And so, so you talk about humor as a superpower. superpower. Um, and one of the things that you talk about is that it can help to enhance status and build bonds and diffuse tensions. Um, so why do you think it is under-leveraged as a tool? And, and then we'll start to talk about um, what people can do to really identify their types of humor and, and make some change. But why do you think, why do you think it's underleveraged, and why do you think so many people struggle with bringing humor and bringing levity into work as something that can really help them? Well, we find that there's a couple of myths um, that people have about humor. So I'll share one, my favorite myth, and maybe Naomi will share another. One of the myths that people seem to hold is that if they are doing serious business and they are serious at what they do, that the role of humor in that work context um, not only is not useful, but it actually detracts, actively detracts from your goals at work. Um, and we see this in the data in one of our um, large scale studies run by Gallup, we show that 1.4 million people, when asked the question, did you smile or laugh yesterday? They say yes, around age 18, 19, 20, 21, and then around 22, 23, it plummets. Mm. This humor cliff is dramatic. And it doesn't it doesn't actually shift. It doesn't increase again until they're about 70 or 80. So, which is horrifying. Uh, that's about 40, you know, way too serious years at mostly at work. And a large part of that is, is, is driven by this belief that you can't be effective at your job while having levity or humor in it. And what was this stat that I read? Um, the average four-year-old laughs 300 times a day, but by the time you're 50, you laugh 300 times every three months. Yeah, that's, that's rough. crazy. <laughs> yeah. So we just, as Jennifer mentioned, people have fallen off the humor cliff and there is this, um, this devastating lack of laughter in our workplaces and our workplaces is where humor can be particularly powerful. And especially during times that are harder and especially during times when we're working remotely. So if you think about when we laugh, our brains release this cocktail of happy hormones, right? We release uh, dopamine, which makes us feel happier. We um, release endorphins, which makes us slightly euphoric. We release oxytocin, which makes us more trusting. 
and we lower our cortisol levels, which makes us less stressed. And so what happens when we laugh together, even if we're laughing over screens, is that from hundreds or thousands of miles away, our brains are experiencing this same burst of chemicals that is that is telling us to connect with one another, to trust one another, one another more. And it makes these two-dimensional interactions um, both more intimate and also more memorable. Yeah, for sure. And it feels like there's... So you've got a whole chapter where you're you're sort of uh, busting a whole bunch of myths around why people are struggling with humor or not bringing humor into work. So people are just generally quite serious um, at certain ages that that really uh, overlap with the working world. Um, mm-hmm. But also people feel like they need to be really funny or that they need to be born funny to... Mm. to to actually bring humor in. So uh, tell us about that and why, why is that a myth? Well, actually, I was going to ask you, Naomi, um, were you, I'm just going to like put you on the spot. Yes. What? Yeah. Are you talking to me? crazy. <laughs> <laughs> so I've never asked you this question, which is, were you always like in your family known as kind of the, the funny person and or... Um, were you ever voted, you know, kind of most humorous person in your high school or, you know, any contest whatsoever? It could be a fake contest. Well, um, gosh, funny. I definitely tried to be funny a lot when I was little. And in high school, I was voted class clown. What? Yeah, which is basically like homecoming queen. I was essentially voted the homecoming queen. Oh, Graham, I think this is a good time for me to mention that I was voted homecoming queen because I, you know, I don't think there's going to be any other opportunity to like mention that, that, that very <laughs> old fact in this interview. So go ahead, Naomi. Um, we've, got, we've got that on record. Yes. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> publish that. Um, just try and publicize that as much as possible. Um, and, you know, she says that on every podcast. She always says, I didn't think I would have a way to say this. but <laughs> <laughs> It is shocking how easy it is to slip that. Remarkable. Um, but I will say, you know, your question about growing up, I, um, I definitely had a proclivity to humor, but I really um, think that it was my mom's encouragement. I mean, my mother... Everything that every little seed of humor that I attempted, she encouraged and said that it was the funniest thing in the world. And, you know, just having this um, having this constant um, affirmation of, yes, your sense of humor is a great thing. Keep working on that thing. Um, You know, don't let that go away. I think that we, you know, often as kids are growing up and as they're um, you know, whether they're getting more serious about schoolwork or getting more serious about the jobs that they're getting, we, uh, we stop uh, prioritizing humor and joy and levity in, you know, in service of efficiency and getting shit done. And the reality is that the two are actually intertwined, that when we have more humor and levity and joy, we're more motivated we are able to accomplish our goals more effectively. We're able to mobilize communities around us. Um, So yes. And it's all because of my mom. (laughs) (laughs) And so you were talking before about the, the neuroscience that 
you know, humor produces all these different brain chemicals that are really useful. And then the behavioral science too, is that it includes, like it really increases people's sense of power. It increases people's bonding with each other, creativity, resilience, like huge things that are so useful for building teams. Right. Mm -hmm. So, so there's obviously a real value here. Um, I, so for a good few years, I've, I've been, uh, quite, I'm, I'm just a geek when it comes to comedy anyway, but for a few years I've been involved with doing improv comedy myself. Um, and we've ended up getting some of those teachers into our business and actually like working with some of the staff as well um, within the business. And I can just totally, um, you know, back up that behavioral research from just my own experience, just anecdotally, just, um, you know, seeing people use humor, even just in the middle of a, a really silly five minute improv game, just mm. to, to really bond in different ways to bring different ideas to the table, actually things that we, that kind of started out as little ideas in little improv games have ended up, you know, being really important things in, you know, in the business and just, you know, just in terms of how people relate to each other and, and how people kind of see each other in different ways and stuff. So it, I, I've just found it like, a, you know, just a particularly um, huge benefit, like over the years. Um, Can you give like, an example? I would love to hear more. Can you think of an example of that? Yeah. So we've, uh, yeah, I'm trying to think about examples that I can uh, share that don't disclose people's like sort of personal stuff, basically. <laughs> but what I will say is that we've had definitely we've we've definitely used it as a way that helps people to establish their personalities within a group and not just that but for them to see that the group accepts them for who they are mm-hmm. and you know they can sort of play up to that slight characterization of or sort of caricature of of um how they work and that that's really accepted and valued and it sort of really helps i think to celebrate that diversity within the team and that you know a a team works well i think when it's um really accepting of difference rather than trying to recruit five people who are exactly the same to work together absolutely yeah so um this research all points to uh you know obviously humor being a really useful underrated tool that people need to do a bit more of you talk in the book about there's four different types of comedian right four different um, ways to to bring humor into the situation. So, do you want to talk about um, those four different types and uh, like how how they're different? Some of the examples, perhaps, of who fits those those different archetypes. Absolutely. So, one thing that we find another myth about humor is that you know you're either funny or not, and you were either a funny kid or you weren't, or you were the funny person in your family, or people told you you were. Um, and that is absolutely untrue. And um, what's what's interesting is that um, uh, is that there's there's sort of it's not that you're funny or not. It's that there's these different humor types. And what's so fascinating is that even when um, when people start to understand about these humor types, they, they often kind of think of themselves in one way and one way only. 
Um, but in fact, when we start to talk to our students about these different types, you start to understand the different contexts in which you might lean one direction or not. So, Graham, we are going to ask you which one you think you are predominantly, at least on this podcast, and then what is your shadow style, all right? So here are your four um, choices. And of course, you're not, you know, monolithic. You're not one all the time. One is the magnet. They are uplifting. They're positive. They have a wholesome sense of humor. They're pretty animated and sometimes even slapstick. And they often smile and radiate charisma. And they'll laugh often at others' humor. The second is sniper. They're the dark, edgy, sarcastic ones. They have an acquired taste. Uh, They're dry, often deadpan in their delivery. And they're unafraid to cross a line for a good zinger. And they're discerning with laughter. They don't laugh a lot. You have to earn that laughter. The third is stand-up. And they're bold, irreverent, and roasting. So they're often thought of as the natural entertainer who enjoys the spotlight, so more extroverted, and they will prank or curse or even ruffle feathers for a laugh, and they tend to have thick skin themselves. And then last is the sweetheart. They tend to be earnest and honest. They're more modest in their sense of humor often or understated, um, less interested in being in the spotlight, and they may plan their jokes out in advance. And certainly they wouldn't want to use humor that's going to hurt feelings, et cetera. So A, what do you think you are primarily on the podcast? And two, what is your shadow style? So the one that I think I am most generally in life and work is Sniper. Mm-hmm. Whether I'm a sniper on the podcast, I don't know. I don't know. Um, I think probably if I use humor in my intros and outros at the end, then it would be generally quite sort of understated deadpan. Um, I like nuanced humor. I actually got called out for a, I put a joke in my Sunday uh, email list that went out yesterday and it got um, slightly misconstrued by someone in, my organization I probably can't say too much more than that but that's a that's a really good example of sniper going wrong right yeah um, where you make these little deadpan slightly nuanced subtle jokes and then sometimes one of the problems with that is that people can sometimes just take that as serious fact rather than <laughs> rather than actually yeah. being um the joke so yeah I definitely think I'm the sniper one and what was your other question what's the what which one is my opposite or your shadow one, like something that you actually value, but no, maybe people don't know this about you. So, well, I suppose the one that I value in other people the most is probably the magnet thing of just the sort of radiating charisma and people who are really upbeat and, you know, they're just laughing all the time. And I think because I'm just more introverted than extroverted. I think mm-hmm. I just value that as a as a sort of way of being in the world, um, and I'm just secretly a bit jealous of it. Like I, I, de- I definitely find that the people who um, have taught me improv comedy over the years, for example, tend to a lot of those people are the magnet, radiating mm-hmm. charisma. They're the people who light up the room, and they they light up the you know hold, sort of hold court and light up the pub in the um, sort of post lesson drinks that we have and all that sort of thing and it's like everybody just wants to kind of 
be around them all the time. Um, and I sort of feel like that would be a really useful skill set for what I do, but it's probably also the reason that I never do YouTube. <laughs> right? <laughs> you you bring up a, such an important point around you know the email that you sent earlier, where it can be misconstrued. And especially for snipers and stand-ups, we find because that sense of humor is a little bit more um, pointed that sometimes people can get in trouble for it. And there's also incredible value to being able to flex your style. So yeah. since Jennifer interviewed me earlier, I'm going to interview Jennifer. Now we're both interviewing. Now we're both interviewing Jennifer. So Jennifer, question for you, because Jennifer also has some strong sniper tendencies. I'm curious, have you ever over the years, you know, as you were teaching or in other contexts, have you ever, ever found that you needed to flex your style or gotten in trouble for your, your sniper style? Yes, I would say definitely. So I, like you, Graham, I think my base is sniper, but I do remember every now and then just getting into trouble. Um, and I noticed it, you know, like you would, you would have a joke. It was often done in an endearing way, but it would have a sting to it. And so especially as I increased in status, you know, moving from assistant professor to associate to full to chair, I, I noticed that I would alienate one, two, three, four people in the class. And, and pretty soon it was at a point where um, if I did use a sniper joke or a zinger, um, that it would have negative backlash effects. So I, pre, pre, you know, predominantly in public situations and much more, um, much more of a sort of sweetheart um, and or self-deprecate in, in most contexts. So it's definitely changed over time. And Naomi, for sure, that was spurred by just experiencing the negative outcomes. And each of these humor types have negative outcomes, right? If you think about status or gender, or you think about reading the room and understanding the goals you have when you go into a meeting or even, you know, having dinner with your kids um, in each of these contexts in your very balanced life or not balanced life. So um, depending on how you're doing it all, you're going to see upside and downside with each of these. And it's going to dynamically change over, over your life course as well. So here's a question then. So if my natural tendency is towards sniper, how do I how do I work on and develop more, let's say, the sweetheart characteristic of being very um, you know, all your humor is PG rated and it's um, you know, very very endearing and doesn't have that bite and you know, all those things that would actually be really useful too to sort of flex and do differently. What can I do that will help me to, to broaden out the style of humor that I'm bringing to the table? One is to recognize that humor exists in the space between you and your audience. So humor does not exist in a vacuum. It's all about the context and the relationship that you have. And so oftentimes when people think about using their sense of humor, they think of it as a static thing. This is my sense of humor, no matter where I go, no matter what context I'm in. And the reality is, your sense of humor should shift towards whatever audience you're with based on how well you know the person, what you think their style is. And so when you first start to know someone, 
having a couple of um, lighthearted comments that are not directed at them, but instead are about a third thing. So, you know, um, gosh, I'm always uh, I'm always tired on Monday mornings, you know, and making some comment about, uh, about the fact that we're doing this podcast on Monday morning. And um, well, you know, luckily I've, I'll feel a lot better after I've had my 12 cups of coffee, right? Totally benign, not very funny, but a little window into levity that lets us interact in a slightly different way. And so I would say, think about it not necessarily as um, when do you need to be a sniper? When do you need to be a, a magnet? But instead think about what's the relationship you have with this person and how do you create these small windows in that feel benign but allow the two of you to develop a banter together. And then you can show more of yourself, have more of your sense of humor. Yeah. And that comes back to one of the, one of the myths um, that you talk about in the book is, is basically this, I can't remember what it's named at, but it, it's something along the lines of people, people hang back from, from creating humor in situations because they're really worried about what happens if it backfires or if it's not funny. And one of the points you make in the book is that as long as the thing that you're attempting to be funny feels like it's appropriate, then it sort of doesn't matter if it's a bit of a corny joke or if it's not that funny because it's still creating that much more sort of human uh, interaction, right? Yes, exactly. Um, and, and it's not just because we wrote that, but also we agree for multiple reasons. But you know what's interesting, Graham, is that for even those who intuitively understand humor's power in the workforce, um, and even, even those who know that you know, the bar is so low, you just have to be not inappropriate. That's all, just not inappropriate. Um, but few still know how to wield it with intent. And so as a result, humor is still vastly under leveraged in most workplaces. What I think is so fascinating is that, you know, just like the science of story or, you know, or, or any science, sci- uh, the science of humor and comedy can be broken down in these really, you know, fascinating ways. And what's been fascinating to watch um, Naomi go through in the last, you know, four or five years since I've known her is her ability, especially to unpack these concrete ways that we can digitally and also, you know, in, in, you know, sort of real form, be able to, to, un, you know, use that science in very practical ways. Yeah. And I wondered if you had any, I wonder if you have like examples off the top of your head for, thinking about those four different types of comedians, so stand-up, sniper, sweetheart, magnet. Can you think of, you know, big, you know, famous American comedians or British comedians that you think would fit those four archetypes really well? Does it work like that even? But I'm just curious to maybe just use that as a way to help people to just get what those differences look like and, and think about the, the sort of broad range of, of comedy in that way. Yeah, we do. And it's interesting. Some comedians have more public personas versus or have different personas based on what format they're doing. Yeah. Um, you could think of <clears throat> the sniper, for example. Actually, I'd be curious who you think, if anyone comes to mind for each of those styles. Well, part of the reason I was asking the question is that um, I, 
just as you were talking, Jennifer, I was kind of realizing how often I think of something really cutting and then I bite my tongue because it's like, no, that's actually just not appropriate. And, you know, that going over that appropriateness line. But that's because often the comedy that I watch is, you know, Anthony Jeselnik or Ricky Gervais or, you know, those kind of very, and Stuart mm-hmm. Lee, you know, very sort of caustic, um, dark, witty, um, uh, comedians, you know, um, who just with, you know, Sarah Silverman, like there's kind of one line, really dark, awful thoughts that, uh, you're not really supposed to air. So I, so I, I think because I watch a lot of that sort of stuff, it, my brain goes there and then I have to sometimes be really careful to make sure my mouth doesn't go there. So that's what I'd put down for, for sniper, but I guess I'm, you're exactly yeah. right. That's who okay. we have as well. Cool. Also, um, Bill Burr, Michelle Wolf, yes. yeah. Daniel Tosh, um, those kind of people. But yeah, you're exactly right on. Okay, what about Magnet? <laughs> I'll, I'll give you a couple that we've thought okay. of. Yeah. Um, so Magnet, we've got Ellen DeGeneres, Jimmy Fallon, yeah. Um, yeah. you know, Conan. A lot of, actually a lot of um, talk show hosts sort of have this natural mm. persona or late night hosts have that natural persona. Um, the sweetheart, you could think of Tignataro, David Sedaris, um, Dimitri Martin, those types of folks. So more. Can you under- think of any British ones on? on yeah, I know. I'm trying to think. Well, I I was thinking that um, I think John Oliver is somewhere between. Well, uh, what, what would you think that John Oliver is? That's probably yeah. That's probably quite a good chat. I wouldn't have thought of John Oliver in that way. He's probably somewhere between sweetheart and sniper. Is he? I would think. Sniper potentially, um, maybe stand up as well, you know, because he is pretty expressive. Um, but that's where I would put him. British yeah. And then you also see like leaders do this. So, for example, Richard Branson tends to be much more um, in that kind of realm of stand up, um, kind of like lights up a room and um, is not afraid to take, you know, center stage. Um, so you also see, um, you know, political leaders, you see, you know, corporate leaders, and then even just thinking about your own family, you know, your parents, your kids, like we've done an analysis because we are a fun family. Um, what are the different styles within our family? Um, one thing that we think is so, um, I think, fascinating, Graham, about your podcast, your book, your work is just this idea of how also do you use these different styles or use humor more generally to think about obtaining balance in your life or even thinking about what is the role of humor more generally in time management. And one thing I wanted to share is, you know, Naomi and I've done a little bit of work in this area too. Um, and, and what's fascinating is that, you know, often people feel like time is a scarce resource that, they're pressed for time, you know, they're too busy for, um, you know, sort of superfluous or, you know, kind of fun things in life. And you're just trying to get by. And what, and oftentimes in those phases, humor is one of the first things that goes by the wayside. Mm. Um, you don't have time for humor. You don't have time for levity. You barely have time to, you know, feed yourself or shower, et cetera. And so, but what's fascinating is that we show that emotions like laughter or awe um, have the unique potential for you to change the frame of what you're experiencing in the moment and, and, and moment, be incredibly present and time expands. Mm. 
So we actually have studies to show that if you show people um, an incredible picture of, you know, Yosemite or the London Bridge, you know, something that evokes awe, that in those moments, your frame shifts and you kind of alter the way you understand um, life because it's so awe-evoking um, and you're very present. And in those moments, literally people will say that they feel like they have more time on their hands. Um, and when people laugh, to, especially together, it's a really um, um, kind of a similar thing where you're in the moment, you're together, and um, not only neurologically are you sort of experiencing something shared, but time expands in that moment. Um, there's even one study, it was a, it was a Norwegian study run um, about a decade ago that shows people that have a sense of humor actually add eight years to their life because wow. laughter produces these protective hormones. It regulates blood pressure. It reduces the effects of stress that can help boost the immune system. And so a sense of humor um, gives people a 30% better chance of survival when severe disease strikes. So not only in the day-to-day, but also across your life, humor is really um, a really remarkable resource um, to help you think about managing time and living a longer life. Yeah, there was another stat that I wrote down from the book where it talked about workplace stress being responsible for 120,000, contributing to 120,000 deaths every year. And so obviously anything that you can do that is going to reduce that work, that sense of workplace stress. Yeah. 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 Hugely powerful. Um, let's think about the real practicalities of some of that then. So uh, there's a, I love, there's a, there's a bit in one of the chapters where you talk about two really important principles to, to bring humor, but just for anyone listening to this um, who, uh, I mean, I would say to anybody listening to this, go and go and study and learn um comedy that's a really nice way to uh, experience some of these principles and you know doing improv uh comedy um as as i did with the maydays in london and brighton in here in the uk um has been hugely helpful for me but for people who don't have access to that in their cities or don't have the time to do that um what are some of the the main principles and what are some of the main tips and tricks that you can give people to really help bring humor into into some of those work situations yeah well the two principles you're referring to are truth and misdirection so this is a common misconception among the executives we work with and also among our students is that humor involves sort of inventing something from thin air and if you think about it that way it seems really hard and the reality is that it's more often about simply noticing things that stick out so mining your life for these oddities and absurdities in the world around you and first just looking at truth. So yeah. the first tip that I'll give and that we talk about in our book is just observing. So um, go through your day on the lookout for anything that strikes you as different or surprising um, or interesting. And it can be as simple as what I mentioned earlier, right? How everyone's tired on Monday mornings. Super simple observation. Yeah. Uh, There's no humor to it. Just everyone's tired on Monday mornings. Then once you have those observations throughout your day, you can apply a couple of really simple techniques. So we go through a bunch of them in the book, but I'll give three quick examples 
of exaggeration, contrast, and rule of three. So let's use that example. Um, Everyone's tired on Monday mornings. Earlier, I used exaggeration. I said, well, everyone's tired on Monday mornings, but it's not so bad after you've had your 12th cup of coffee. Right? Okay, great. A little bit of exaggeration and a tiny bit of humor. You could use contrast. So you could say, I know everyone's tired on, um, on Monday mornings, but everyone just hang in there and soon you'll be extremely tired on Monday afternoon. <laughs> Again, just a little, and, and we're using misdirection there too, right? So truth and a little bit of misdirection. Or you could use rule of three, which is simply having a list of two elements and then the third one is slightly different. So you could say, um, you know, it's Monday morning, which means that it's time to get your coffee, have a nice breakfast and scream for a solid minute into your pillow. (laughs) So that's, um, and it's really that simple. It's as simple as looking for these observations. And then oftentimes you don't even need to apply techniques to them, but you can apply a series of these techniques as well. But that rule of three is so powerful there, because if you just said it's Monday morning, it's time for everybody to scream into the abyss. Everyone just wondered, <laughs> someone would just say, what the hell are you talking about? Whereas yeah. when you set it up, you know, reach for your coffee and whatever, and that's the third one. So exactly. why, is, why does the rule of three work? Mm. So it comes back to, yeah, it comes back to misdirection that we are, we're hardwired to create patterns and the, the basic principles of comedy, truth and misdirection means that we need to create some degree of, you know, making people think that you're going to zig and then zagging. Mm. So rule of three is a really easy way to create that misdirection inherently, right? I'm going to give you A, I'm going to give you B, and then I'm going to give you an orange. (laughs) Right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, The truth part of all of that, I think, is, is really interesting and very, actually very easy to apply. I remember... Uh, sort of there was a little while ago I did a keynote and I realized that all the biggest laughs that I got were the things where I hadn't actually set up a joke but I just reacted to the truth of the moment in the room so all those little things like so if you're sat there doing a presentation for your colleagues or you're you know on on stage giving a talk and someone's phone goes off or someone at the front has to in a really you know clumsy way get out of their seat to go to the toilet or whatever it might be just like you like you know that the whole audience are distracted by that thing and they're focused on that thing and they're and there's this kind of sense of tension there of like oh it's sort of Mm -hmm. going wrong because this thing's happening and if you just go it's going wrong because the thing's happening you don't even have to make a massive joke of it but just to go to the truth and just put it on the table rather than it being under the table is just such a powerful thing. Once I learned that, yeah, that you don't even need a joke. You just go, oh, someone's phone's going off. And everyone goes, oh, thank fuck for that. You know, I can actually, I, you know, we can breathe again because that tension has been diffused. Yeah, just naming whatever so happened yeah. in the moment. That's, yeah. that's exactly right. Yeah, just simply naming what's going on. The other one that's so, so easy like that is what's called a callback. So you yeah. just, if the group has laughed at something earlier, you just make reference to that same thing and that's it. Right. I would just make reference to um, the fact that Jennifer's a prom queen at the end of this call. I knew you were going to go there. I appreciate that. Well, yeah, it's her favorite thing that I reference. So I try and make at least five references. (laughs) 
<laughs> so I guess just playing around with these really simple principles and just adding them in. Um, there's a lovely thing. So do you know what we haven't mentioned so far is that you guys run a course at Stanford in this, right? So what a, I'd love to hear more about that. Um, but there's an exercise that you do on that course where you get people to go through the sent items of their email and send send the other person in in the little pair that you're working with the last five emails that you can and just look mm-hmm. at and sort of analyze where you might have used humor in those emails where you where you didn't um so i'd love to hear a bit more about the course but also just about humor with email and mm-hmm. things that people can do that again real real simple but just builds those relationships I would say on email, um, this has been the most life-changing thing for me. Um, When I started working with Naomi about five years ago, um, there was kind of this rift that she had brought in from Deloitte and her colleague, Brian, about sort of, you know, talking like a human and not using, you know, basically business jargon bullshit, one of which is best, right? And I would sign off with best all of the time all of the time. Um, and, and that small, the small shift away from just anything but best and pretty much anything. It doesn't have to be funny. Just, it doesn't, you know, just anything but best has enormously shifted, um, the way I react, you know, interact with not just, um, friends, but colleagues. It's been, you know, Graham, like, I don't know if you noticed, but we sign off all of our emails to you with something, you know, quite intoxicating. Um, <laughs> yeah, we, yeah, we literally just signed off something, um, to Matt who introduced us to you, Graham, with something that was definitely not PG 13 and then yeah. had to have like another PS explaining the off color, um, sign off. But, what we find is if you start or end um, a message, and it doesn't have to be email, it could be anything, um, with something with levity, it transforms the nature of the relationship and increases the chance that the person will, will actually get back to you. In some of our cases with our students, it, 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 it really changes the chance that they will get a job interview and offer. I'm not joking. Mm. Yeah. And it's almost like that. Um thing that you often hear when people are talking about best practices for giving talks and public speaking and all that, which is that basically the only things that get remembered are if you're giving a talk, the first thing you say and the last thing you say. And so mm-hmm. that and sense funny of the signing off with, um, so some of the ones you had in the book was, uh, you know, if you're trying to get something from somebody signing it off with fingers and toes crossed, <laughs> um, and then you've got a few other examples here, like yours heavily caffeinated, which it's a good callback back to our, our coffee thing. Um, or sheepishly, if you're apologizing, just sheepishly, Graham or whatever. Um, mm-hmm. So having those kind of sign-offs and also using like PSs underneath the message as well. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. Yeah. PSs are intoxicating. They're often the first thing that people read. Mm. <laughs> What are your favorite PSs? Do you have some regular ones that you use or is it all just in the moment? No regular ones. Jennifer is the master of PSs. If I if I'm the reason that Jennifer stopped using best, Jennifer is the reason that I started using PS because mm-hmm. she is relentless with our PSs and she will put 
She has no regard for what she puts in that PS. It could be something, it could be a scientific study that's really interesting. It could be like a totally weird and unrelated comment. It could be something about, you know, something that her kids did this morning that's totally unrelated. So it's really, um, we have no, I don't know, Jennifer, do you have any go-to PSs? No, the only thing that we have as a good, well, first of all, I agree with that, Naomi. I think that life is so fucking boring and also kind of horrifying right now, right? And we're living digitally. Um, We are in our homes, particularly in um, the United States, but, you know, elsewhere as well. Um, We are at a state where we just need some humor, some levity, a little bit of love. So I would say the one go-to that both Naomi and I uh, endorse, and it comes from the regrets of the dying. It turns out that the number one regret that people say when they are on their deathbed, and I know this because my mom has volunteered for hospice for 40 years of my life. So I grew up hearing these stories about what people ask for on their deathbed. What um, the number one reason, uh, number th- one thing they wish for is that I wish you a chance to say, I love you one more time. And one of the things that we find, so it's, it's insane that we're not just all saying love or XO or smiley face when we sign off, because you never know when you're going to die. So how incredible would it be the last thing out of your mouth or your, you know, on email is love. Um, And we also find that humor, you know, is not far away from love. When you make someone laugh, um, it's actually a sort of a small manifestation of of love. Because if you think of love really as this thing of making others feel valued and connecting to them, the opportunity to know other styles, read the room, know what space they're in and make them laugh is, is, is nothing, is, is nothing short of a small manifestation of love. So Naomi and I sign off with love, um, you know, basically all of the time I make my kids sign off with love or XO or just L even on text. So um, I would say that would be the one common denominator across all communication medium. <laughs> nice. Um, tell, tell us a little bit more about the course that you've been running and how that, how that started and, 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 and the results that you've had um, through that. Yeah. So we teach a course at Stanford's Graduate School of Business called Humor Serious Business. Uh, we've been running the course for four years now and um, to give you a sense, we our students get the same amount of academic credit for our course as they do for financial accounting. So it's taken very seriously, which is extremely exciting. Um, you know, it started as a pilot. It started four years ago as, you know, Jennifer and I really believed in this content and Stanford is incredible about supporting these new areas of research. So we created this pilot course about how humor is really powerful, not just, um, for, you know, to, to do funny things, but actually to be more successful in our jobs, to be more fulfilled in our lives and make change in the world. And so, um, so that's what we teach and it's now blown up. We teach it with over a hundred Stanford MBAs every year. And, um, 
And really it's aimed at making a shift in people's mindsets as they go back into the workplace, looking, you know, being on the precipice of a smile, looking for reasons to be delighted and to bring joy to other people's lives. And our hope is that by doing that with our hundred Stanford MBAs, and now hopefully with many, many more people through this book is to make a fundamental shift in the world that, um, that more people will look for joy, will look for creating joy for other people. And by the way, be more productive at work because of it. <laughs> Indeed. Yeah. Um, and that sounds like a pretty incredible mission to be on. Um, one thing I feel like I have to mention before we finish is um, the, the British version of The Office. Because um, I think the British version of The Office, I presume you guys have seen it, right? Yeah, love it. Big fan. So David Brent Big fan. talks about himself as, I think, what's the thing? Is it a friend first, a comedian second, and a boss third or something? But there's something in that which, you know, in the conceit of the show is that he is being followed around by this camera crew and he wants to make a name for himself as a as a sort of entertainer outside of, um, you know, being the, the boss of this very average paper merchants in uh, a kind of small industrial English town. But I feel like just the spectra of David Brent hangs over any office humor in the UK, right? It's people not wanting to bring humor into work or make jokes. It's, you know, if you are the leader, if you are the boss figure, because it risks, it's such a fine line between all of the great stuff you just talked about and being David Brent, right? Which nobody wants to be. So do you, and I haven't watched much of the American office. That's my um, confession, but do you think there's, um, do you think that's a prevailing reason why uh, people struggle with this stuff is that they, they just see it as being, uh, like two different worlds that shouldn't collide almost. Jennifer, I love what you have talked about, about being more generous with laughter and that that's sort of the most important thing. Yeah, I think it is. I mean, if going back to these regrets of the dying, um, which is part of our book at the end, which does not sound hilarious, but turns out um, it helps foreshadow why humor is so important. They're really these, these kind of... Um, Thought. One is, you know, people wish that they had taken more risks, um, that they live more boldly. They wish that they were more authentic to who they were. They wish they kind of savored more, were more in the present. Um, and the fourth is that they they basically experienced more joy and and laughed more generously. You know, there's um, and then the fifth, as we know, is I wish I had the chance to say I love you one more time, but that that fourth regret of, I wish I just didn't take myself so seriously. I wish I uh, didn't chase happiness, but rather allowed myself to feel happy, allowed myself to, to feel joy. And that is so often easily remedied by being more generous with laughter. And I think during these moments of, um, with this global pandemic, with um, greater sense of uncertainty in, in all of our lives, the opportunity to simply be more generous with laughter is maybe one of the best, most important things we can do, not just to our friends, family member, and those that we work with, but those who we don't understand, those people who are different from us, those who we might think um, have different opinions from us, that opportunity to share laughter together in one of our studies that we cite is 
that that couples who actually have shared sort of laughter together when they recall those moments versus simply happy moments, they're about 28% happier in their relationship. They say right after thinking about a shared moment of laughter that they feel really good about their relationship. Mm-hmm. Um, so that simple thing of even just recalling shared laughter um, is, is, is fundamental. Mm-hmm. Nice. And I guess and- it's all down to oxytocin as well, right? So, you know, when you're, when you're laughing together, it's producing those same, those same uh, hormones that make people feel together and trusted and bonded. Yeah. And Graham, to your, to your point about, you know, people worrying about coming off as trying to be funny or, or being the boss that no one wants to be, you know, there are two things there. One is, as Jennifer said, it's less about being the funny person and more about showing you have a sense of humor, signaling that humor is welcome here, especially when you get to those higher status roles. And the second thing is there's a relationship between status and self-deprecation that once you get higher status in an organization, leaning on self-deprecation and vulnerability is actually the more powerful place to go to. So one example from a couple days ago, we, um, Connor Demon Yauman, who's the co-CEO of Merit America, which is a large nonprofit in, um, in the US, he was on a phone call with his entire organization or sorry, he was on a Zoom call with his entire organization. And it was a really important moment. You know, it's a hard moment um, in many ways. And he was trying to sort of be inspiring in some ways, but also acknowledge the difficulty of the situation. So he was sharing his screen on Zoom. And when he passed it over to one of his colleagues, he pretended like he had forgotten that his screen was still being shared. So everyone in the company could see his screen and he opened up a browser. He, he went to Google and he typed in what are inspiring things that CEOs say during hard times? Question mark. He typed it into Google and everyone, you know, everyone cracked up, but it was this incredibly powerful moment of a little bit of levity, but also a lot of vulnerability. You know, I don't know the answers. This is a really hard time. I'm the CEO of this company and I really want to be there for you you know, and doing that in a lighthearted way, which is not the same as being the center of attention, making these big jokes. Um, so th- those are the two things that I would, I would, you know, that we'd hopefully leave folks with is one, it's really more about generosity, signaling that you, that humor is welcome here. And then two, you know, especially for folks in higher status roles, recognizing that a little bit of levity goes a long way and often self-deprecation and vulnerability is the more powerful window in. Amazing. Um, and I suppose my final question has to be, um, for you, Jennifer, which is, um, what was it like being the prom queen? Oh God. Thank you, Graham. Oh my God. Wow. That was the best. We got that in in the beginning, the middle, and the end, which makes this the best podcast we've ever done. <laughs> it was spectacular. It was everything we all imagined. I mean, it's still being that class clown, but it's something. <laughs> So I probably could have predicted that I was going to laugh quite a lot on uh, this call, and I have. So, um, so you've you've lived up to the billing. Um, so let's just finish with um, 
where people can get hold of the book and um, anything else that you want to just link people to as we finish. Wonderful. You can get a hold of the book everywhere. Just Google humor seriously and you will find like, it will like sprinkle down with like, you know, free books, like, you know, somehow <laughs> magically. Um, you will also find our website at humorseriously.com. Yeah. Humorseriously.com might be your best bet. Or you can go the sprinkle route that Jennifer mentioned. Yeah. <laughs> Sounds great. Well, thank you both so much for being on the podcast. It's been great fun. And uh, yeah, congratulations on the book. Really enjoyed it. And um, thank you. hopefully everyone's going to check it out. Thanks, Thanks Graham. Graham. Wonderful talking to you. Really enjoyed that one. I hope you did too. And uh, thanks also to Matt at Penguin for helping me to set that one up. Um, Thanks as ever to Mark Stedman, my producer for the show, and to Emily for all of her hard work in making the Beyond Busy machine work well behind the scenes. We've gone weekly, as you might have noticed, a couple of weeks ago. So um, yeah, we're actually booked up for guests pretty much till Christmas already. Um, But we'd love to hear your thoughts if you have ideas about who should be on the show. So if you would like to drop me a line about that, just graham at thinkproductive.co.uk. Think, uh, speaking of Think Productive, so Think Productive are our sponsors for the show. That's my business, by the way. So if you are interested in productivity workshops and training and coaching, then go to thinkproductive.com to find out more. And as I mentioned before, I'm doing one myself, which is the Six Weeks to Ninja Evening Programme Uh, starting in November. So come hang out with me Thursday evenings, UK time in November and December. And I will talk you through all the best stuff I know about productivity and uh, kick your productivity into shape. So if you're interested in that, graymalcott.com and find out more. And uh, the other thing I wanted to just say uh, very quickly is just shout out to my Toronto Blue Jays who have made the playoffs for the first time since 2016. Uh, which as I'm recording this happened last night. I'm recording this on a Friday. I am very tired today. (laughs) I've been watching a bit too much baseball this week and also just doing um, 5am starts. So um, yeah, like it's been a a week of not very much sleep. I'm actually really impressed that I have managed to record the intro and outro to Beyond Busy in only three takes today so far. So uh, all good. Um, So yeah, really uh, pleased to have got a good week of work under my belt. I'm really just loving having five days in my week at the moment um, and being able to do pretty solid work on four of them and then uh, keeping the, the fifth day of the week in reserve. Because as you know, we pretty much work a four day week, uh, think productive. Um, so today was just a couple of little mop up bits on the Friday and then off to my folks in the Midlands to just go and see them, see my family before the... I guess, anticipated lockdown. Is that how we're talking about it? Like everyone sort of knows it's going to come, right? And that's just, just you know, everyone's just doing their doing their thing until that arrives. But um, yeah, just going to have a, a nice weekend off and uh, get ready for another busy week next week. So I hope everything is well in your world. I hope everyone is okay and hope you're surviving this slightly gloomy start to the autumn as it's turning out to be. Um Let's strap in for a long winter, eh? But uh, thanks for listening to this. Thanks for being part of this Beyond Busy community. And uh, if you want to find out more, I should also just say the show notes are available at getbeyondbusy.com. And my weekly Sunday rev up for the week email is available to sign up for at graymalcott.com as well. 
that's it. We'll be back next week. I'm so tired. I can hardly talk, but uh, I've... Uh, uh, I'm really pleased that I've managed to get this in three takes. So I'll I'll leave that there. Otherwise, it's going to go wrong. So I'm going to say take care and see you next week. Bye for now. Bye.